You're listening to a sermon from the Access Church as we seek to gain godly stability through the book of James. Um, we're jumping into James 4, but we're really picking up where we left off in November. Uh, November, we took a break for our Advent uh, month and then three weeks of vision um, earlier this year. And now we're getting back to James chapter 4, which is our 10th week now in the book that was written uh, by the younger, one of the younger brothers of Jesus. Uh, James had at least two nicknames, and you know a lot from somebody by, by a nickname, typically. Um, but James had a couple. One that we know of was James the Just, or Just James, because of his righteous living. Uh, what a devout man he was. And then another one was Camel Knees, for the time that he spent in prayer. He had um, swollen knees for the amount of time that his knees were just crushed to the earth, crushed to the floor um, in prayer. As a way of reminder, James is writing to a scattered people. He's writing to Christians who are running in fear of persecution, the persecution that would eventually take the life of James. And as these Christians, as they ran and scattered from Jerusalem, you know, naturally they were trying to fit in different societies and different little villages here and there, and yet they were all handling this persecution in a number of different ways. They were responding to the persecution in a number of different ways. You see, not only were they young Christians and young followers of Jesus, but Christianity itself was very young, just a couple decades old. And so James, a man who initially wasn't a Christian, though someone who, being the younger brother of Jesus, knew Jesus and knew him well, he later followed Jesus as Lord and Savior after the resurrection this James, he wanted to give some insight and some direction. Um, he wanted to give some guidance under the um, authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he wanted to encourage and guide. And so he writes a letter addressing these young Christians how to live out their faith. That's what the book of James is. How to handle themselves. What to do in certain situations. How to, how to live with one another as other Christians. How to live in a way that honors Jesus. How to live in a way that is stabilizing for a Christian. And all the, all the leaders, I mean, all the readers uh, respected James as he was the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. This letter of James is immensely practical. It's very, very practical. Uh, in fact, it's considered the Proverbs of the New Testament uh, because of just how practical and, and wise this, this book is. Well, for sake of um, context and to help us uh, with the understanding of where we are in chapter 4, I'm going to start by reading the final verses of chapter 3 to give us some context as we make our way settling into these 10 verses. Starting in verse 13 of James chapter 3. So who is wise and understanding among you? By his conduct, his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But, all right, follow along because this has a lot to do with chapter 4, okay? But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. This is different. This is earthly. This is unspiritual. And this sort of thing is demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's going to be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above from God is first, it's pure, it's single, right? It's pure. 
then it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, chapter 4. Let's get to work. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What's the source? What causes? What's the source of this strife? What's the source of the animosity, the friction? What's, what's the reason? What's the cause for the conflict? What causes these disputes and these arguments, these fights, these struggles, these clashes, the headbutting? Like, what, where's this rift coming from among you? I mean, this is a very timely question. This is, a, this is not only a timely question for our country and our world, but for our church, for us as people, and for us as individuals on, on so many levels. Because many of us are on edge, and we're on edge for many, many reasons. But what causes these negative emotions? What causes these, these negative feelings in our hearts with other people, with those in our extended families, with those that we work with, with those that were part of the same church? What's the cause? What's the root? What's the why behind the why of our bickering, of our relational struggle and tension? What causes us to be known more for what we're against than what we're for? What's this coming from? James answers his own question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That your pleasures, your desires, the best way to understand this word passions here, is it not this, that your desire for pleasure, these things are at war. They're fighting and battling within you. So there's apparently struggles in the uh, Christian communities that James was writing this letter to. And each person seemed to have wanted their own way in certain things and thought their way was right. Sound familiar? Uh, they were selfishly like looking for leverage everywhere and anywhere. James makes it very clear that these struggles are not from God. These struggles are not holy. And this is wrong. This is not good. And the cause for fighting and frustration and anger and bitterness, the, the cause is something from inside of us. This is profound. I believe this is very, very profound. It's, you see, it's easy to pin something on someone else, thinking of others, but James tells us that it's something on the inside of you. It's something on the inside of me. James says, don't look on the outside. He says, don't look at others. Look on the inside. Let's not uh, merely internalize this frustration and anger that we feel and try to convince ourselves that we're not that upset as if the admittance of certain things makes us feel dirty or yucky, as if those emotions and that anger right, that's within us, that we can just suppress it and push it down and it's okay. Friend, when you feel this bitterness, this anger, this frustration, you've got to be honest with yourself and you've got to be honest with God. It's the only way that we can truly change and be healthy and whole. I mean, there's been hostility and anger all around us. And it's within us, unlike any time I've ever seen in my life, what I would like to consider my short life up until this point. I'm a young man. There's pandemic anger. There's race anger. There's religious anger. There's political anger. And I believe that all of us are guilty 
over the past 12 months of being angry at somebody or something. And James is telling us that though all this involves others, don't overlook that the po- there's a great possibility that the main problem is within you. And though we'd love to control and change other people, at the end of the day, we can only really deal with ourselves. And James says that a key to unlocking this sort of self-control and this health is looking within at the source of our anger, at the root where we're really afraid and discontent. You see, James being a faithful pastor, he unpacks this a little bit for us. Look in verse two. He says, you desire, you covet, you long for, you're lusting after, and yet you don't have. There's a dissatisfaction. You long for these things you don't have, so you murder, you kill. You, you, you earnestly are, are giving it all you've got to strive after. In other words, you covet, and yet you cannot reach it. You can't acquire it. You can't obtain it, and you're giving it everything you've got, and you can't get it. And so you, you fight, and you go to war, and you quarrel, and you struggle, but you, you don't have, you don't have it, you don't possess it because you don't ask. You're not pleading for these things. Now, the murder here probably refers to the killing with words, right? Think Twitter, rather than the literal killing of each other. And what James does here is he paints a, a mental image of what this anger looks like in the eyes of God. It's murder. This anger is murder. And James also follows these conflicts to their source. The source of this conflict isn't the Christian's love of God, but their love for their own desires, our own selfish desires. These uh, often are very evil impulses. And remember, James told us about all this back in James 1.14. He says, each person is tempted when he's baited and lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, it grows and is conceived, is, gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth, brings forth murder, brings forth death. It's James 1. So there's some frustration on the inside of who you are and down at the level of what makes you feel that you matter, down at that worth level, down at the level where you gather your identity from down in the area where you rarely invite other people and you, you fear the truth of that deep level of yourself being known by anyone. It's down there. There's frustration there. There's a uh, striving after and not having. So there's a discontentment and a dissatisfaction down inside your heart and your mind and your soul. And there, down deep, there's instability because of this discontentment. That's what James tells us. And you don't know how to handle that. And you're unsure how to process this discontentment. You try to live with this dissatisfaction and discontentment, but what this does is it creates an anger within. And that anger is on the same level as murder. Now, it's over the top, man. It's not like that. I just really uh, hate this about them. It's not that I want them dead. I'm just angry and probably bitter about this thing. But then the words of Jesus begins to ring in your ears, if you're willing to listen. Where he said this in Matthew 5, you've heard that it's said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then we learn the same truth from the beloved disciple John in 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So rather than allowing bitterness and anger to control you and your relationships with others, James tells us to pray. <laughs> he says, ask. Ask. You, you, there's this discontentment because you're not willing to pray through this. You're trying to internalize it and force it. You're not willing to pray about it and give it to the Lord. And verse 3 says, but you, you ask, okay, and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. And what that word means literally is harmfully. You ask harmfully to spend it, or that's not like an investment term. It's more like a, a waste term, like you blow it. You ask wrongly to blow it on your passions. Your passions, uh, those things that is merely just pleasurable for you. So you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to waste it on the things that just simply make you happy. How appropriate it is to look back again at James chapter 1 and verse 5 where it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the person who doubts is like a wave of the sea. It's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he's going to receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded. He's unstable. He's double-hearted. Divided loyalties. You see, all of their arguing, all their fighting is, is pointless, James is implying, and it certainly bears no good fruit. Actually, James writes that they don't get what they want because they don't ask God. That's not true. I pray. Sure, okay, we pray. We pray at some level. But God's not responding to certain prayers because, James is alluding to this, our motives are selfish and our motives are harmful and wrong. And when we do pray, we do it in such a way that it's not about compassion. It's not towards reconciliation, but it's about getting even, moving on, canceling, moving on past other people. It's, it's a selfish prayer. It's not prayers of nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It's prayers of God, get them back. It's vengeful prayers. Vengeful feelings are driving those prayers. It's, it's prayers about others, and it's really rarely prayers about ourselves. They're not praying because they're not praying in the right way because they're not praying for God's will to be done, God's way to be known, and God's wisdom to be given. They're not praying for reconciliation and for Jesus to be made famous through it. Their desires are, are based upon the things of man and not the things of God. You remember when Jesus was addressing uh, the disciples, telling them, I'm going to die and then beat death. And Peter said, over my dead body, that's not going to happen. That's in Matthew 16. And then Jesus looks Peter in the eyes after he just said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Like, this is wonderful. And then Peter just blows it, right? In this moment, it's, oh, it's awful. And he, Jesus looks him in the eye and says, get thee behind me, Satan. But then here's the interesting part. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's the problem with the prayers. They're set, their prayers are based on the things of man, not on the things of God. And then the verse right after that, like as soon as that happens, you're not setting your mind on things of God, but things of man. 
Jesus says directly following that, he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him go against all that is within him that he desires. Let him deny himself. You've got to go completely against your desires, your passions. They're at war within you, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, Jesus says. And this person praying is not denying themselves. Rather, it's all about themselves. Their prayers are for Jesus to deny himself. They want Jesus to lay down his cross and follow them. This is a picture of us. Praying, my will be done. My will be done. Not thine, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about what I feel is best. It's based upon my desires, upon my pleasures. But now here's the thing about God. His goal isn't to give us what our impulses demand and cry out for. That's not God's goal. He loves us too much to do that. He cares far too much for us to give us what our impulses demand. His goal is for us to learn to love and care for the things that he loves and cares for. And he wants us to be happy. God wants us to have pleasure. More than you want pleasure, he wants you to have pleasure. But he wants to transform you in order for you to learn to take pleasure in things that he knows is truly good. This is one of the beautiful things that God does for us when he saves us, when he makes us new, when he forgives us of our sins and reconciles us to himself, is that he transforms us. He changes our taste. He alters our, the palate of our hearts. A verse that's often taken out of context for selfish gain is uh, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Oh, okay, right? It's like, here's how, this is the genie in the bottle verse, right? But see, God changes our hearts as we delight in him. He changes our hearts so that we begin to desire the things that he desires. And we begin to pray as God would have us to pray desiring the very things that God desires, but we often drift towards a divided heart that's full of selfish desires. James knows this, and he boldly writes of this discontentment and this division in the soul. Look at this in verse four. He says, you unfaithful people, you adulterous people, don't you understand? Don't you get it? Don't you know that this affection with the world and for the world, this this friendship with the world, you know, the, the, the world that is at odds with God, antithetical to the things of God, the world system, the, the fallen world order. Don't you know that friendship and affection with the fallen world order is against God? It opposes God. It's at enmity with God. Therefore, it's clear whoever is desiring to be a friend and devoted or loyal to the world by definition, makes himself an enemy of God, one who opposes God. Again, I hear the words of Jesus in, in the voice of James, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You see, this term adulterous people, um, it actually is adulteresses. Now, it's not that all those that he's writing to were women, but the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ, like in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, uh, in Revelation 19, and in chapter 21. You see, in, in claiming to trust in God, while we at the same time live according to our own desires, we're adulterous, we're double-minded, double-hearted, we're cheating, we're unfaithful. 
For us to go after another lover, which is our sinful desires, this is to be unfaithful to God. So friendship with the world is this hatred disposition towards God. God's word actually says this in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, do not love the world. Do not love the things of the world. In fact, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, think about exactly what James has told us already, okay? Think about it. For all that's in the world, the desires of my flesh, the desires of your flesh, the desires of your eyes and the desires of my eyes, and the pride of our life, this is not from the Father. This is from the world. We've inherited this through Adam, not Christ, the new Adam. And remember the world and all its stuff, all its desires is passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Christian, we must not play games here. We must not live with divided loyalties and affections. And I know this is difficult. This is the great struggle of the Christian life, in fact. This is it. Being torn between our flesh and our spirit, our heart of stone and our heart of flesh living for us and our desires, living for the glory of God. This is the great struggle. And we must fight the drift here. Fighting the drift here is actually proof of your faith in God and your belief in the finished work of Jesus. He continues in verse six. Do you, do you think or do you suppose, are you imagining that it's to no purpose, that it's in vain, that the scripture says that God yearns and desires that he longs for like jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. You think that's just ridiculous that they said that? Now, we don't know exactly what scripture James is referring to. There's no known use of this saying. It's believed one of two things, that he's citing a general sense of scripture or referring to a book that we've lost, that no one, that he knew about, that we have uh, no knowledge of. But regardless, the point is that as God gives to each person his spirit, and that spirit begins to transform them into God's likeness, and we become imitators of God, God jealously longs for a pure love in return. God, God desires a purity of love, a single love in return. It, knowing that in that sort of love, that sort of commitment to God, that's where we're most happy. That's where we're most content. So it would not be helpful. It would not be holy. It would not be good for God not to be jealous over this sort of love for us to experience, for us to be able to give him. See, God is jealous of our love and our affection because he wants good for us. And he fully knows that we will feel the most good when we're sold out to him and we are pure in our devotion to him. And scripture doesn't speak mildly or softly of this divine and holy jealousy of God. God longs for us to experience the, experience the satisfaction of knowing and serving and obeying God alone. Remember back in the Old Testament, you had Joshua where there was this collision of um, devotion between who to worship. It says this in Joshua 14, Joshua says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity. What that means is in a, uh, sing, be singularly devoted, right? With pure affection, with a single heart, not double-minded, double-hearted, 
but in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers who served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you're going to serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river, serve them. Or serve the gods of the Amorites in whose land you currently dwell. But as for me, as for my people and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, as we often daily fumble with our obedience and our divided hearts and our loyalties, one of the beautiful things about our loving and gracious God is he gives us more and more grace. You see that in verse 6 on the heels of this teaching that James is giving us. He says, but he gives great grace. The word more means great. It's closely related to the word mega, megas. He gives great grace, undeserved merit, undeserved kindness, unforeseen goodness. He just pours out on you more and more. Remember that it says God resists and opposes the proud. He opposes the arrogant. He resists the arrogant. But he gives this undeserved goodness, this grace to the humble, to the gentle, to the one who's meek. Submit yourselves in verse 7. He says, willingly place yourself under. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, not to your natural inclinations, the desires and pleasures of your heart, not to getting even with someone else, but submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Don't oppose him. Don't fight one another. In fact, resist the devil. Oppose the devil, the adversary, and he'll run away. He will flee from you. Don't fight one another. Don't oppose one another. Don't oppose God. Oppose the devil, and he will flee. In fact, oppose the devil, but then come near to God. Draw near to God in verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. He'll draw near to you. Purify and cleanse your hands, you, you, you who are outcasts, you who are sinners. And dedicate or, or purify or bring a single focus to your hearts. You double-minded, you dual-minded. You who are doubting this dual focus. This draw near to God and he'll draw near to you echoes what we hear Jesus tell us in one of our favorite passages here at the Axis. Come to me, draw near to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The picture that James is painting for us here in verse eight is that of a person entering the temple in the Old Testament, coming to offer a sacrifice in the temple, coming near to God in a, uh, a sacrificial ceremony. And so this washing of your hands is an Old Testament picture that alludes to the removal of these sinful practices and being devoted to follow God alone. All of this works together to purify our hearts, to unite our hearts, and to bring a purity of heart, a single heart to our lives. And it's a stabilizing, uh, there's stabilizing results from that, a single focus, a pure focus, no longer having a dual focus or divided loyalty. You see, the double-minded person this is a picture of us. It's the one who's constantly torn in that great struggle between serving and obeying God and serving and obeying the world, the flesh, and the devil, us. It's such an unstable and fickle dilemma that we're in as Christians. But in order for us to gain stability, we've got to run after the purity of heart and do away with the divided loyalty 
And he's encouraging us to purify the heart, be devoted to and committed to and follow after and trust God alone. And then he he concludes this this portion here after teaching these different uh, tasks that we're to do as we follow the Lord with a single devotion. He says that that, that we should be um, mourning our sinful state, as it were. In verse 9, he says, learn to lament. Learn to lament or, or be wretched. Be sorrowful. Learn how to be sorrowful over this sin. Mourn. Be sad. In fact, cry and weep. Let your laughter be transformed into grieving. Your mourning, have it transformed. Have your joy and your gladness turned to gloom. It's a word for depression in the New Testament time. Humble yourselves. Make humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. Man, what a promise this is. As we emotionally and spiritually and even psychologically repent of our sin, it's very difficult and heavy as we repent because we're having to admit, part of repentance is admitting our way is wrong. And we hate that. There's mourning that has to happen. We realize I've wasted a lot of time. I've wasted a lot of money. I've, wa- I've, I've burned a lot of bridges. I've done a lot of bad, wrong things. There's some mourning that's there as we feel this. And then by faith, saying no to our way and by faith, follow God. This is against our desires. And so as we humble ourselves in this way, James offers us a promise. God's going to come near to you and he will lift you up. God never leaves a humble heart mourning. Never. In fact, in Psalm 147.3, it says that he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. According to James, when we get mad, these 10 verses here, we've got to humble ourselves. We've got to get to the cross and repent. We've got to receive grace and receive God's word. And I want to give you these four things here real quick and then I'll be finished. What to do when we get mad? What do we do when we have these quarrels and these fights? Okay. James tells four things. Humble yourself, get to the cross and repent, receive grace and receive God's word. First, humble yourself. Now, this particular humility that James is directing us towards is an intentional submission of our mind and our will to God. Not because it makes sense. It's by faith, submitting yourself to his word, his way, and his wisdom, what he thinks about it. The heart behind this sort of humility that James is calling for us here is is found in Proverbs 3, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In fact, don't lean on your own understanding. Submit to the Lord. Don't submit to your understanding. Actually, in all your ways, acknowledge him, not yourself. And actually, what will happen is he'll bring some stabilizing uh, direction, a, a singular focus. He'll make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Submit and fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Resist the devil. This is going to be healing to your flesh, binding up the broken, the wounded, right? This is going to be refreshment to your bones. Part of this humility is also refusing to easily give in to the devil and fall into his traps. It's no longer taking the hook, regardless of how enticing the bait is. 
the devil, the ancient foe. He's the ultimate source of tricks and traps and temptation. And, and this learning not to lean on your own understanding is resisting him. And when the devil is resisted, he flees. He threatens disaster. He talks a big game, but it's a lie. And like all lies, there's only power in it if you believe it. The Bible says you resist him, he's gone. That's the truth. Now this takes faith, and often this goes against our feeling. But God honors faith. God honors faith. Responding in this way is bringing a singular focus to your psyche, to your heart, to your spirit, and to your life. So humble yourself. And then two, get to the cross and repent. The answer to moving forward isn't going to get yours or getting even, but getting to the cross and repenting, being forgiven and freely forgiving others. Repentance at its core is turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere. And this turning to Jesus is part of the necessary humbling of yourself that we just talked about as it's abandoning your way. It's forsaking your natural tendencies that you realize as you read scripture, don't honor God, regardless of how instinctual they may be or natural they may feel. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2 in reference to your life before Christ, your former manner of life. You lay aside that old self. You lay aside that natural part of who you are, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. This, along with hundreds of other actions, hundreds of other thoughts that you realize aren't in line with obedience and holiness and repentance, these things you slay, you kill, you mortify. You're done with it. Paul writes about this in Galatians 5, 24. He says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh. It's dead. They've crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. Those things you want real bad. They're given. They're submitted. They're processed through the truth of Scripture, not just through our feelings. It's declaring and seeking to live as if those passions and natural inclinations are dead. He writes about it again in Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh and what feels good, what's natural, your own way, you'll die. But if by the spirit, which is the, the source of our sanctification and change, if by the spirit you put to death these deeds and these passions, these inclinations of the body, you'll live forever. For all those who are led by the spirit and not the flesh, these are sons of God. Paul encourages us in Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, have this mentality among yourselves. Consider the members of your earthly body. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, dead to impurity, dead to passion, dead to evil, dead to desire, dead to greed. All this is idolatry. Consider these things dead to all these things. You have to adopt this mentality that I'm to live for God's glory and that's alone. And there's nothing else. Romans 6, 6 says that knowing this, that our old self, our self before Christ was crucified with Jesus in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. This is what Jesus was getting at when he told them, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Paul simply put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die every day. 
It's like John wrote in uh, John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. An important part of our repentance has got to include this intentional refusal to continue in certain sinful behaviors and patterns. And it's intentionally applying and adopting new habits and behaviors that are in line with obedience and holiness, in line with repentance. Knowing that that's not where your righteousness comes from, but that's a fruit of the righteousness bearing forth in your life. It's like John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So humble yourself, get to the cross and repent, and then three, receive grace. God accepts the humble and the repentant heart. And he responds by pouring out his love into that heart. And he raises up that person from their mourning. He raises them up into the warmth and comfort of his love and acceptance and his grace. Now, they may still be in a bad situation. They may still be in a sad situation. But they're comforted by his attention, his affection, and his love. His nearness seems to change everything. But have you experienced that nearness? Have you experienced the nearness of God as you draw near to him? He draws near to you. Have you experienced that? It changes you. You'll never be the same. And rather than, rather than experiencing more shame or guilt or condemnation, as we humble ourselves, as we thoroughly repent, we get to experience grace that is greater than all of our sin. And this is true throughout scripture. Proverbs chapter three and 34 says, to the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, God gives favor. And Peter talks about this in first Peter uh, chapter five and verse five, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. humble this echoes James right here. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humble yourself, get to the cross and repent, receive grace, and receive God's word. The only way to know how we're to live in a humble and obedient way before the Lord is to spend time hearing from him, listening to him, hearing his word. And you know, this takes humility. So in a way, we've gone full circle with these four things. It's humbling to sit before a text and ask God to inform you, implying you're ignorant. We don't like that. To guide you, implying you don't know which way to go. We always know, right? This is humbling. It's humbling to sit before a text and ask him to inform you and guide you. Admitting that you don't know the truth and you don't know the way. And it's admitting that you're not enough. But here's why this is so vital to our spiritual growth and development. Without time in God's word, we will not know what we're to do, how we're to do it, and why it's necessary. We'll never know. And there's no happy or healthy Christian who's not spending consistent time in scripture. And a most dangerous sort of religious person is one who pushes back on that. There is no healthy or happy Christian who's not spending consistent time in God's word. And we would love to disciple you in this. We would love to teach you more about getting to the cross. We would, we would love to walk you through what repentance looks like and, and how to read the Bible, how to make sense of it, how to consider doing it daily, if you would let us. 
Humble yourself. Get to the cross and repent. Receive grace and receive God's word. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, those things that you may deeply desire. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the unbelievers, the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Our sinful hearts. Our hearts have to be changed. Want the frustration and anger to go away? You want peace? You'll never find it without first finding perfect righteousness. We must be delivered from our sinful, lustful hearts and habits of sin. And we can't do this. This has to be done to us. This has to be done for us. You see, my friend, this is why Jesus was sent by God out of love to us. He came to do for us, as we read about just now, as Jason uh, read the assurance of our salvation in Romans 8, he came to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. He came to deliver us out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. He came to give us hearts of flesh, removing the heart of stone. Jesus came to dead people, giving them life, making them alive. This is what we need. We've got to be rescued and delivered from sin, from the consequences of sin, the guilt of sin, the presence of sin, and the power of sin. And there's no hope if we're expected to do this ourselves. But there's all the reason in the world to hope as we by faith trust God who can do this for us by his spirit through the finished work of his son Jesus. So our answer to all this, our hope through all this is found in Romans 7 and 21. Listen to Paul as he feels this great struggle and dilemma of the Christian. See if this resonates. So I find it to be a law. This is true, in other words, always, that when I want to do right, oh man, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is true, but I see in my members there's another law waging war against the law of my mind. And it actually makes me captive to the law of sin that still dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. That takes humility to say that. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friend, this is what has to be on our minds and our hearts as we approach communion today. It's this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You are saved by faith in Jesus alone, where you believe what he said, you believe what he did, and you believe he did it for you. And you know it's grace. You know there's nothing you could ever do to deserve it or earn it. You're so loved. You're so loved. You're so approved. It's been perfectly settled. It's finished because of Jesus. You get to experience the satisfaction of God and no longer his wrath. Jesus changed all this through his perfect life and through his substitutionary death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This, again, is what we focus upon as we approach the Lord's table together this morning. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your little brother James through your very spirit penning these words for us to not just consider, but for us to submit to and live obediently to in full obedience. Lord, I pray that you would continue to convict me of sin through this passage and many of my friends here and those who are at home live streaming this gathering, that you would be faithful to convict us of sin, to bring about the appropriate shame of the sin that we are walking in, and that you don't let us just sit there in that, but that we turn to you, understanding by faith our forgiveness of that sin through your finished work, and through repentance, processing why we drifted to that sin to begin with, by considering how much more fully you give us what we were longing for behind that sin all along and that we would more quickly and naturally run to you for those things instead of other things that can't satisfy and the things that might be the desires of our heart, but they're wrong and they're sinful. God, convict us of these things and allow us to do as you've commanded us to be holy as you were holy. Lord, all this is only possible through your love and grace through your spirits abiding and dwelling, powerful work in us, transforming us through the finished work of your son. And we thank you for all of this. Lord, add your special blessing this time of remembering. Lord, as our hearts say, thanks be to God for Jesus and what you've done for us. Yes, add your special blessing this time of remembering. In Christ's name, amen. You're listening to a sermon from the Access Church as we seek to gain godly stability through the book of James.